And before long, I'm sneaking into their bedroom. I'm climbing the bookshelves and getting due down so I can read ahead. I didn't exactly understand lots of it because age four. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode, I asked a few people to send in their thoughts about Frank Herbert's novel, Dune, which turned 50 last year but still looms large in my imagination, and many others. Dune is one of my heart books of science fiction and fantasy. I read it first in the mid-80s. I was a teenager, which means I was the perfect age to read Dune. That's Paul, who you may remember from our past episode discussing Amber and Kate Elliott's books. I encountered Dune when I was a bit younger than Paul, but much older than Liz. I was not four. We'll hear from Paige next. Hi, I'm Paige Kimball. With regards to Dune and my experience of Dune, I first tried to read Dune when I was at my father's when I was about 14 or 15 and had run out of books. And I got through about 50 pages and bounced off the top of it. I think I must have bounced off of it three or four times before I actually managed to read it in college. We're going to start with a favorite game of science fiction and fantasy fans. What subgenre is it? This book that has dukes and spaceships and sandworms and imperial planetologists, and of course prophecies and faster-than-light travel via the spice. How do we begin to make sense of Dune? It's really an epic fantasy in space! It is! I mean, you have ostensibly magic powers, you have feudal structures, you have all sorts of court intrigue. Yes, there are spaceships. Yes, there are, there's weird technology, but Doom again and again reinforces that fantasy feel. I mean, consider the personal shields which make physical hand-to-hand combat, which you'd think in the future with laser guns and, and big weapons would be out of fashion. Or, no, it's actually lear- learning how to fight with knives and other things is not only practical, it's essential in an age of personal shields, things that bring down combat to a very personal, intimate level. And that's, again, epic fantasy. Consider the final fight between Fade and Paul. I mean, that's a classic epic fantasy climax where you have the villain and the hero going at each other blade to blade. That's not space opera at all. There is a lot of weird and perhaps uncomfortable orientalism in Dune. With regards to Orientalism, I really have to wonder if Edward Said ever read Dune, just because it feels like an example out of that book. At least in the first novel, we see everything through the eyes of Paul. We never really get anyone else's perspective. We we sort of do. We, we sort of get Jessica's perspective sort of briefly off and on. But in terms of understanding, everything is sort of framed through how Paul understands it and how Paul comes to be part of the Fremen culture. The Fremen are definitely patterned on Middle Eastern cultures. And as such, I'm not really equipped to say how this world building resonated or harmed folks from that culture. I can only talk to my experience. And reading as a child, I I believed that the Fremen were awesome, badass fighters. I really wanted to grow up and, you know, live in a hidden Fremen siege and learn how to handle a Chris knife, all that. I do feel that there could be an element of exoticizing or romanticizing that sort of background. In my most recent reading, I detected a very patronizing tone from Jessica when she talks about utilizing Fremen superstitions to survive. The Missionaria Protectiva has been implanted by the Bene Gesserit centuries back among the Fremen. 
she can't even grant that their beliefs and cultures are their own because she actually knows where they came from. And you can kind of see how this is an indictment of both religion, but it's also a very colonialistic attitude. Jessica doesn't think anything of exploiting this. I have a lot of thoughts about how Herbert looks at colonialism and what his take on it is and why it seems so contradictory. I should sort of preface this by saying that I don't believe in death of the author. I feel that the context and the history of when an author was writing is really, really critical to understanding and analyzing the work. Herbert's writing this in the late 50s, which is right after right around the time of the Suez Crisis, the empires of Europe were losing their imperial control. And not to put too fine a point on it, but I think Herbert could have been looking at it from the perspective of the typical white American perspective even today, which is that freedom is good and empire being a colony, not being free is bad, which is fine and to a certain extent correct, but it's overly simplistic. And it also ignores the fact that the U.S. was and is a colonial power in many ways. So my take is that Herbert's writing this from understanding and feeling that, oh, these people need to be free. But as is typical of of people with privilege, he's imposing his own understanding on the situation. He can't really comprehend it and make it work without it being on his terms. So you've got Paul Atreides, the, the white savior. I mean, he could be in the textbook. And he's the one who's sort of the chosen one from legend who's going to save them all. And you'll notice that at the end of Dune, the first novel, Paul basically just takes over the empire. He realigns it so that the Fremen have control of Arrakis. He can't really comprehend a non-empire state of being, but he, he wants the Fremen to have control of the spice because, because well, they own it, it's theirs. But at the same time, he can't comprehend the idea of the system not working the way that he's grown up with it. And I feel that as the novels go on, you can see his growing and shifting understanding of empire, at least again, from his perspective, complicit in a, in a colonialist power, his understanding of it shifts along with the understanding of it worldwide. So what Leto does, Leto II, by God Emperor, is he's created a whole new empire in his vision, his golden path, which it turns out wasn't what he wanted it to be at the end of Children of Dune by any stretch of the imagination. He's just created stagnancy again. So I think that you could look at that as Herbert commenting on the post-colonialist powers and what happened in a lot of the post-colonialist powers after they became independent. I should really clarify that I, th- I think his view is flawed. I think he he really isn't coming at this with particular sort of sense of empathy. But I think he's not someone who's ever really questioned his privilege. And so he's trying to tell this story about freedom and post-colonialism, and he's ending up basically just reinforcing the same old tropes. I think it's interesting how clearly Dune indicates both the anxieties of 50 years ago and also brings out many contemporary political and literary critical trends. I'm going to drop an essay on problematic faves that I find helpful into the show notes. We're also going to talk now a bit more about the history and the world that Herbert built. I think what's really interesting for me is that 
yeah. Herbert mashes a whole bunch of stuff up in Dune, stuff that doesn't necessarily go together. In fact, stuff that we see as pretty much polar opposite. So the Zen Sunni referring to Islam and Buddhism and the Orange Catholic Bible, which William of Orange being the Protestant um, here in Glasgow, we have orange marches, which are Protestant sectarian marches. So Orange Catholic is pretty much a contradiction in terms. I think that's the extent of where Herbert's imagination could go with regards to how things are going to be different in the future, that everything would be mixed up into one or two sort of dominant philosophies. And I think that's valid, but then everything really sort of loses its point. For example, he he mixes up a lot of stuff out of Islam and then Judaism into it, and it sort of becomes one amalgamation of exotic that I don't think does anything more than expresses exoticism. These these big ideas like, oh, we can't have artificial intelligence because of some mysterious thing that's only mentioned in the back of the book. So the Butlerian Jihad and all these other things end up being mostly window dressing for having this culture and these characters and this other culture and these characters. It all came about messily because that's the way history works. In the original Dune book, we're presented with this whole weird interlocking set of things that have grown up over thousands of years. And yeah, they don't all quite work together. Some of them feel like they like, should be in different books. I mean, you have the Spacing Guild over here, you have the Bene Gesset over here, you have the political setup that's explicitly not stable. It's a feature, not a bug. I ask people about iconic scenes and characters in Dune. Personally, I always return to the banquet scene in the palace, which we see through Jessica's eyes, where every participant, every comment, even the seating arrangement is analyzed for its political implications. There are veiled warnings of danger through the Atreides' coded language, empty-headed plus ones who steer the conversation towards commercially or politically relevant topics, always this looming sense of danger. I suspect it's a polarizing scene that plenty of readers find boring, but I loved it. Even though I mentioned it when I asked for a response, no one else brought it up. But plenty of other movements came through. One of my favorite scenes is the scene where they cross the sand at night using the thumper and make their way to the basin where the Fremen are watching them. Paul first confronts Jameis and Stilgar. Eventually Jameis has to call him out and Paul's forced to fight Jameis in order to prove that he has the right and not just him, but he's basically also fighting for his mother because she would be accorded status as a witch and not allowed to live as she hasn't been trained up to the Fremen ways. They want to render her body down for the, her water at this point. It's interesting because from here I go to the funeral. Jamis's Balisset, which reminds Paul of his friend Gurney Halleck, the iconic scene where Paul, who's not yet used to the Fremen water discipline, cries, the entire tribe is moved, Usul gives water to the dead. But it turns out there's even more to take from this sequence. Paul is defending his mother, and yet she's perfectly capable of defending herself. They actually have injunctions for Jessica not to speak, lest she somehow turn the tide of the battle. And you kind of get the feeling that Jessica is really, really powerful, even when her son is fighting on her behalf. You never felt that Jessica's power was undercut at any point. 
she's just a strong woman and her son is proof that she's a strong woman she raised him she trained him the fruit comes from the tree i really liked that about this series jessica and paul were easily my favorite characters even when they're being short-sighted unfortunately I, I still love them, and I love Jessica, and I love being in her brain. I love that we saw so much of her thoughts as she analyzes the world around her. The Baron, probably should talk about the Baron and some of the problems of the book at this point. I mean, his quote-unquote sexual deviance and how it's treated as a character flaw is definitely way out of current morality. The miniseries doesn't go anywhere near that. It doesn't bother with talking about the Baron's preference for for homosexuality. In, in the book, it's a horror, and that goes back to that whole very conservative epic fantasy sort of world. Of course it is. I mean, consider he doesn't have an heir of his own line. I mean, he has his two uh, wacko nephews as heirs, and one's worse than the other. And that's presented in the book as the barren sexual deviance being a bad thing. So that's really out of step with today's society, and it's something you have to look at the book and go, well, that society is screwed up in the head that way, and Herbert's not advocating it, or shouldn't be advocating it, he's presenting it. Okay, cards on the table here. My reading is that Baron Harkonnen, who is a grossly self-indulgent man and Leto's archenemy, is portrayed in horrific ways as someone whose outward disgusting appearance reveals his inner hideousness. In Dune, I believe the pinnacle of the Baron's despicableness is that he is not only gay but a pedophile, and that in the book there is no real distinction between those two things. He is simply a sexual deviant along with so many other terrible characteristics. I find this aspect of the book reprehensible. I cannot express how much it bothers and offends and disgusts me to read the Baron portrayed in that way and to have homosexuality equated with pedophilia and to have those be representative of the Baron's moral character or lack thereof. I, I find that awful. I tend to cope by downplaying to myself those scenes where those aspects of the Baron come up when I think about and read the book. Let's go back for a second to the notion of problematic faves. For me, I have no interest in trying to find logic or significance in any aspect of the portrayals of Baron Harkonnen. I find it easiest to simply note that he is vile, note that he sometimes moves the plot forward, and get away from the Baron as quickly as possible. Having said that, I think Paul is right that, like many other epic fantasy stories, Dune is a book concerned with dynasties, and the Baron's inability to father an heir is an element of his role as the anti-Atrides, and I think that there are ways in which, if you were willing to sort of entertain the notion that, that it's reasonable to talk about the Baron and the fact that he can't produce an heir and contrast that with Leto and think about what heirs mean in the book, I think there's there's something you can get out of that. It's, it's just, I have no interest in thinking about that aspect of the Baron. I would like to get past that part of the book as quickly as possible. Dynastic considerations do feature prominently with both Paul's mother, the Lady Jessica, and also his concubine, Chani, and we're going to move on to those topics now. I mean, think of Jessica, for example. She defies the Bene Gesserit, and the Bene Gesserit are amazing in so many different ways, both bad and good. She defies the Bene Gesserit because she loves Leto. Because she loves Leto, she won't give him a daughter like the Bene Gesserit want, she'll give him a son. And I don't think you'd necessarily have that today without it being sort of further examined. And it's it's really not. It's really just sort of a given. She'll give him a son and an heir. But this is 
10,000 years in the future, so why would that necessarily matter? What's interesting is Herbert really develops the Bene Gesserit later on in the series, particularly in the last three books that no one ever reads, and they become much more human, much more people with both flaws and, and strengths rather than, than sort of hubris and heroism, which, you know, I got to give Herbert a little bit of props for that, that he actually develops his, his writing of women over time. It's by no means perfect. He did learn. And Chani, I suppose, is also really kind of, well, really quite disturbing in that she's both this very competent warrior woman, and yet she also becomes quite submissive and sweet to Paul when they get together and, you know, sort of really capturing the Orientalist perception of women in both ways, you know. I don't think Herbert really tried to write the other in any way, shape, or form. I think he just sort of ended up writing as he perceived people to be. He tried hard, I think, to perceive people and try to perceive people who he wasn't, you know, anybody who wasn't a white guy. But I think in the end, he was limited to what he could see and what he could understand. The litany against fear is what came up frequently when people talked about iconic moments in the story. I suppose the scene that defines Dune for me the most is where Paul and Jessica are fleeing the Harkonnens and they plunge straight into a sandstorm with Paul piloting out an ornithopter. And this scene is particularly famous because it contains the litany against fear recited for the first time in the text as a whole litany. I still use this scene in my brain when I'm flying on an airplane and encounter turbulence. I try to recall that no matter what else is going on, I am not in a sandstorm on Arrakis. And it's a whole man against his environment, be the environment political, ecological, be it social. But I think that there's this whole theme of are we adapting to our surroundings or are we going to be rigid and let it kill us? And at some point, you just have to kind of ride the whole thing out the way Paul rides out that sandstorm. I can't really discuss this without looking at the litany against fear, which I think a lot of people have really taken to heart. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it, to be perfectly honest with you, because I feel like fear can be useful. Fear can be a tool. And I think that the Bene Gesserit would have known that fear could be a tool. Though maybe that's what they're saying when they say to let it flow through you and only you remain at the end. So to analyze the fear and take and learn something from it. It is really telling that that's the Bene Gesserit way of determining whether or not someone is quote-unquote human. That never really gets brought up again after the first novel. In fact, it doesn't really get brought up again after the first few scenes, you know, in the entire thing. So maybe it's there just so that we can see, oh, Paul is really special, and this is how he's going to go become Mr. White Savior, Last Samurai Guy. But at the same time, it's not something that the Bene Gesserit usually give to men, which is really interesting. It's something that they only use to judge themselves. And so they've judged Paul as being the special man. You have to wonder if Herbert knew about women and pain tolerances and that sort of thing, or if that was just something that passed him by and he was just making it up. I also asked people about Dune's legacy. 
what's Dune's legacy? Um, is it bad if I say Dune's legacy is how not to write the other? Which is true. But I think Dune made it acceptable in mainstream science fiction to write about really strange things and really strange understandings of the human mind, for example, the spice trance and that sort of thing, and to write about drugs, but to do it in what's a very mainstream science fiction novel, rather than something that you had to be tripped out to really understand. I think that Dune is an important novel, partly because of the ecology focus. Right now, more than ever, we are seeing our planet change as the result of human action. And if we don't want to end up in a frankly apocalyptic wasteland or other terrible future scenario, we could do a lot worse than to look at Dune and the lessons of ecology that are contained therein. One of my favorite bits is when Kynes is out in the desert without his still suit and he realizes that his planet is going to kill him. He loves this planet. He is a desert creature, as he puts it. He has changed and adapted to this planet, and ultimately, the dream that he's been working for will be realized. He's actually aided the person that will basically push his dream into reality. There's this prophecy among the Fremen that eventually Arrakis will become green and fertile. And Paul thinks this is a great idea. Let's redevelop Arrakis. And, and make it in these people's image. In Dune, when you start mucking around with the natural environment, be it trying to mine spice, trying to harness worms, trying to make Dune a planet into uh, places with water and a much more hospitable to humans, you're going to wind up doing things you don't intend or expect. And that's a very important these days, especially now when we're pumping so much CO2 in the atmosphere. We are changing our planet, whether we will or no, and we're not quite sure what's going to come out of it, but it's not all going to be good. And doing 50 years later seems even more pressing into about when you start messing with a planet on a wide, wide scale, you don't know what you're going to get, and you're probably going to regret it. And that that is something, especially as the 21st century goes on, will keep making Dune relevant. And yet there's this whole sense that, like, kinds he doesn't fall short, he just becomes one with his planet when it finally destroys him. And there's this sort of beautiful meditation on the way his planet is bent on destroying him, and it's the sort of, the way his planet destroys him is the way we're destroying our planet in some respects. If you think about our planet as sort of a, a body for humans, and what we're doing to it is we're basically trying to mold it and change it and exploit it, and I think that the ecological messages of Dune are going to be very timely in the near future. We're going to move now from Dune to a Kickstarter project that closes this Friday. People of Color Destroy Science Fiction and Horror and Possibly Fantasy is the third annual Destroy short story anthology from Lightspeed Magazine. The project will compile new and reprinted short fiction from authors of color. It is all selected by everyone working on the project, identifies as a person of color, it includes many personal statements from authors of color, many of which are already on the website, destroysf.com slash POC. I will have plenty of links in the show notes. 
project actually came up quite a while ago on the show when I had Akeel on. It is now live. I highly recommend supporting the project, which again is up through this Friday, February the 19th, at least here in the States. You will get a lot of really great fiction by new and established authors selected by highly respected anthologists. I asked the personal essays editor, Sunil Patel, to talk a bit about the project and the personal essays that he solicited. We will hear that after a few clips from earlier episodes with Akeel Harris and Troy Wiggins. I read, I think it was 100,000 Kingdoms by N.K. Jemisin uh, a month or two ago, and uh-huh. I think I think it's like the first speculative fiction novel I read by a black person, and it was really nice. I liked it. There is a book that is directly responsible for my deciding to write fantasy fiction, and it, okay. it's David Anthony Durham's Acacia. And I was reading that. I was... This was one of the times I was coming back to the genre and I was, this was after college. I just graduated and I was unemployed and I was, didn't have anything to do really, but apply for jobs. So while I was applying for jobs at the library, I went and picked up a book and I hadn't been to the fantasy and sci-fi section in a while. So I went over there and I had a phone, I had a smartphone. I was like, uh, black fantasy authors. I Googled it. And his name was like one of the first ones to come up and his book was called Acacia. And so I found it and I went, and I picked it up and I started reading it and it was great. And I was like, oh, this guy's writing. I mean, why can't I write a book about stuff like this? And so I, I started writing that day. I started writing a story. Oh, can I tell you a little story? Please. Okay. So are you familiar with the uh, Queers Destroy Science Fiction Kickstarter? I am. That was through Lightspeed. I found out about that just as I was uh, looking into reading more about queer experiences. This is really cool. And they did one for women, too. There's some really good stuff in there. But I was looking at it, and I thought it was so cool. And at the same time, I was thinking, this is really cool, but are they going to do one for, like, people of color? Because that'd be awesome, too. And so what I did was I emailed them saying how awesome I thought it was that they were doing this and trying to promote marginalized voices and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. uh, But also, I was asking you know, are you guys going to do one for people of color? Because that would be really cool because I realize now I really don't see a lot of stuff for my people of color. And so John Joseph Adams emailed me back saying that, yeah, we actually are going to do one. Hi, I'm Sunil Patel, personal essays editor for Lightspeed's People of Color Destroy Science Fiction special issue. We have a Kickstarter going on right now, which you can find at destroysf.com slash POC. And I'm here to talk to you a little about it. Thank you to Jonah for having me on the podcast. So People of Color Story Science Fiction is a special issue of Lightspeed that is completely written, edited, produced, illustrated, all by people of color. This is great because, as you might know from being in the world, people of color, that is, people who are not white, are generally seen as a minority, despite the fact that actually worldwide there are more people of color than white people. But that's a whole other issue. This issue is about giving people of color a voice, putting stories by people of color in one place so that you can see a whole bunch of great stories. Because what you normally see is a bunch of stories written by white people. In my personal essays, a lot of people talked about erasure and the fact that they didn't realize that the world was sort of this full of white supremacy. And so when they started writing stories, they were writing white characters because that is all they'd ever seen. I did the same thing. I did not realize that when I started writing that I could write Indian people because I'd never read Indian people in books. If they were in there at all, they were side characters. They were never protagonists. They weren't doing anything. They talked about the fact that they did not see themselves in stories. 
and that made them feel like they didn't belong in stories, which is completely untrue. We all belong in stories. We all have a place in stories. No matter where you come from, who you are, what your background is, we all deserve to have our stories told. And people call our story science fiction as a project to allow that. We've actually reached our goal of destroying science fiction, which is great. We've also uh, reached a stretch goal of destroying horror. We are getting close to being able to destroy fantasy. Now, your support will help us destroy so many genres. Because there's also this, there's, there's this thought, this notion that people often have that stories written by people of color are inherently lesser. And that's wrong. And that's, I, it's just, it's wrong with the capital W is what it is. It's because white supremacy is sort of insidious and oppressive and subconscious. It's not something that you do on a, on a, on a regular basis. Even I, as a non-white person, have been affected by it. I, I, I inherently think, oh, it's something written by a white person. It must be better because that is the majority of our entertainment that we get. All the books that we see pushed, the most famous, the classics of all time, everything you read in school is all written by white people. <laughs> and so you get the impression that that is what literature is. That's what stories are supposed to be. People of color destroy science fiction says, no, we can do more than that. There are other people who have not had the chance to have their voices heard, and we are giving them a place to have those voices heard. And you, by supporting this project, are helping these voices find their way into the world. You can help debut new voices. You can help promote voices that deserve to be heard even more than they already are. And as a bonus, as a Kickstarter backer, you will get personal essays delivered to your inbox every day. We only have a few days left, but the background picks are all there right now online, and they're all personal essays written by people from all around the world of different backgrounds, and they explore what it means to be a person of color ex exploring science fiction, what it means to watch science fiction and not see yourself, or to see yourself depicted as a stereotype, a horribly offensive stereotype of that. So I hope that what you will do after listening to this podcast is go to destroysf.com slash POC, look at the back of rewards. At this point, you get so much for $5, it is just ridiculous. You get the issue, you get horror, you get magazines, you get a, a, a sampler anthology. You get so much for $5, and I think it is absolutely worth your time and your money to help support this amazing project. People of color destroy science fiction. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at Jay Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at King Cabbage Cast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.